Good morning, everyone. It's a crazy day around the courthouse here today. Um, this is uh, Brittany Rubendahl versus Community Hospital of Anderson and Madison County. Uh, representing the uh, appellant is Mr. Neil Eggison. Yes, sir. Welcome. Uh, representing the appellee uh, uh, community uh, hospital uh, is Jenny Bukite and Sean Dewey. So welcome. Uh, parties have, uh, or we have allowed 20 minutes and Mr. Eggison, I see you have reserved four minutes for your rebuttal. With all that in mind, uh, you may proceed, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, again, Neil Eggison on behalf of Brittany Rubendahl and the proposed class. For 19 years, Community Hospital Anderson transmitted the protected health information of its patients unencrypted over open radio airwaves to unsecured devices. The issue before the court this morning, simply put, is whether community can escape responsibility for that act based on nothing more than the fact that one of the victims doesn't know how many other people received that information over those 19 years. And let the me uh, just, uh, for the record, make sure we understand this. When you say airwaves, we're not talking about somebody driving down the road uh, picking up communications on uh, 106.9 on their uh, radio dial. We're talking about it, uh, the only way it's accessed is through what we know as a ham radio, and then you have to have specific uh, software to decode that message. Am I correct That is correct. That? Okay. Yes. Pr proceed. Thank you. Uh, I, I will enter a caveat there. I personally don't know the difference between a shortwave radio airwave and a stereo radio airwave. My understanding is the same. It's just a question of what device you need to receive them. But whether that's a distinction without a difference, I, I honestly do not know. What is the software for decoding or whatever you allege needed to happen in order to understand the message? So the we are dancing around the perimeter of my technical expertise here, but my understanding is that the, the shortwave radio, the radio waves come in to this device. And it is in what is called a POXAG format. That is a specific type of format which is read by pager systems or beepers for medical facilities. In order to translate those POXAG signals into something readable, one needs to download freely accessible translation software that uh, apparently is installed directly into the system and it then will produce a printout or transcription of what it is receiving. Is this like Morse code or is it, is it more, um, well actually Morse code, anyone can understand that, right? That's correct. And this, you have to have special software. That's correct. You do need this freely available accessible software in order to translate it from the, the Morse code into something that I can read. So isn't that an intervening cause for when you have some, a, a news reporter here that is actually doing that? I mean, is proximate cause an issue here? So I would say there are two answers to that. First and foremost, intervening cause would be a question of fact. So if the court did want to go down that road, I still survive summary judgment. But I think the more important question and what you're getting at is if... Well, we know it's about publicity. What is publicity? Sure. That's the issue here. You're, you also aren't able to understand what's coming from the... the 1069 radio tower either until it is received by an electronic device that then converts those waves into something your ear and brain can understand. So is that an intervening cause? 
maybe, but according to the restatement, we know that that radio broadcast is publicity. Comment A to section 652D of the restatement tells us, here are some examples of what is undoubtedly publicity. But, but, but maybe a distinguishing fact here from most um, invasion of privacy or, or public disclosure of private facts cases would be that there's nothing nefarious in the underlying facts. I mean, this is a reporter trying to expose something that shouldn't have been happening, but there's no um, insider that's communicating confidential information to a third party who then posts it on Facebook, for instance, like in one case I'm thinking of. This is kind of a, an experiment that um, ended up without any disclosure except to that particular reporter, right? As part of his attempt to find out what's really going on. So I would disagree that there was no disclosure to anyone but the reporter. We know of only one person who actually has the printout of that protected health information, but I would argue that the disclosure reached 50,000 plus people. Isn't that Anderson speculative, sir? I mean, you have no proof of that. You have no idea who heard this transmission uh, except for one person. Uh, that's the only person you can say with certainty that, that heard this transmission. That's correct. We know that the whistleblower who notified the reporter also was receiving transmissions, but we don't know if it was this particular one or not, because that's the person who instructed the Fox 59 reporter how to do it, and she turned around and was able to do it herself. So I would agree with you that far. But let, me, let me ask you one more question about this uh, transmission, these radio transmissions. What's the lifetime uh, of these transmissions? In other words, if somebody gets on the radio and says, hey, we have an add-on surgery today, how long does that transmission last? That transmission lasts for a, a second or two, is my understanding, unless it is received by something which is then transcribing it. So in this example, for example, the Fox 59 reporter turned on the device and walked away and let it run and transcribe. She let it run for 14 hours. During that 14-hour span, she collected protected health information from 354 different patients. So did the radio signal last a second? or did it last for 14 hours? I'm not sure how to answer your question, but I hope that No, does. I think you answered my question. The other uh, kind of follow-up I have to that is, uh, uh, it was mentioned in one of the briefs that uh, uh, she most likely committed a criminal offense when she, uh, uh, she intercepted these airwaves. Do you agree or disagree with that? I disagree with that. Okay, why is that? So first and foremost, as, as I understand it, the argument that this is some kind of criminal act is based on the idea that the person who who intercepts these radio airwaves that are flying past us at all times has to be aware or cognizant. There has to be a mens rea element to it in order for criminal liability or culpability to attach, which actually goes back to something that Judge Brown was suggesting earlier, that there is perhaps nothing nefarious happening here. But I would go so far as to say, that's not the only time we protect privacy in the state of Indiana. You don't need mens rea. There is no scienter requirement to Section 652D of the restatement. We protect privacy. We value privacy in Indiana, regardless of what is going through the head of the person who is transmitting it or the person who is receiving it. Okay. So, so if I can just interrupt you. So Chief Justice Rush in the McKenzie case, I, uh, she defines publicity and I've written it down here, and this is a quote, means that the information must be communicated to, publicity means that the information must be communicated in a way that either reaches or is sure to reach the public in general 
or a large enough number of, of such persons. I, I, I'm having a hard time understanding how this type of transmission is, fits under publicity under the McKenzie case. Here's the analogy that I think makes it easier to understand. I drove past a number of billboards on the way down here this morning. If in driving down, my deepest, darkest medical secret had been plastered on one of those billboards, would this court accept that publicity had occurred, or would this court send me home empty-handed unless I were able to get affidavits from some predetermined number of passers-by on 69? That's different because that is clearly likely to reach the public because we know how many people are, are driving past that billboard every day. But we're, we're talking about having to have a ham radio and having to go on the internet and getting this free. I n I've never heard of this. I, you know, I, that's, I don't think the, the, the public is in the sense that McKenzie, as the Chief Justice has defined publicity, is the same thing as what you're saying with the billboard. See, and I would disagree simply because while I understand what you're saying, I would say that my deepest, darkest medical secret on a billboard is reaching just as many people as putting that in a shortwave radio. The only question is we're willing to... Assuming that we are all downloading this software and we all have ham radios, that's different than everyone that's on a road has eyes that can see that billboard. And I think you're getting directly at the question of fact that is determinative here, which is whose responsibility is it to present this court with the number of people in Madison County or in the surrounding area who have ham radios? I'm not talking about the number of people. The, I'm looking simply at the publicity definition that the Chief Justice has given us in McKenzie. Sure. And I am going based on, as I understood it in McKenzie, the court was adopting Section 652D of the restatement. And if that is the case, then we know that posting a sign in a shop window, we know that a radio broadcast, we know that those regular, things are public. radio broadcast. And, and I don't know that the restatement draws that distinction, but sure. Okay. But the point being, one of the reasons why the trial court erred here is because it misapplied the burden on summary judgment. We are not a Celotex jurisdiction. It is not my burden as a plaintiff to do anything unless and until the movement negates an element of my claim. So if they did want to negate the publicity element in the way you're saying, it would be relatively easy to find out how far this radio transmission goes. We asked for that information and they did not provide it. It would be relatively easy to perhaps do some kind of statistical survey to figure out how many people in that surrounding area own uh, this particular type of radio. Or maybe even do some internet searching to figure out how many people downloaded this particular freely available software. They did nothing. To be clear, the only thing they have done, the only thing they designated in support of their motion was the fact that my client doesn't know. And your client, well, but did they not create a, a, an issue uh, or uh, did they not negate one of the elements when they did that? Uh, they accepted her, said one person. Then isn't, doesn't the burden go back to you uh, to then uh, come forward with some other evidence that more than just one person uh, had heard this? I disagree because my client didn't How? say. What are you basing that on? So my client is aware of one person, but my client's knowledge or lack of knowledge does not carry their burden of proof. 
Her knowledge is not an element of public disclosure of private facts under the McKenzie standard, under 652D, or anything. Publicity is an objective measure regardless of what my client knows or doesn't know. If they want to negate that objective measure, they have to present you with objective information beyond my client's knowledge or lack of knowledge. So because of that, they didn't negate anything. But, These but are all how, questions. Do, how do they prove a negative? How do they support an affidavit with a negative that no one else besides this one person knows? I would argue that they can't, but we don't have to cross that bridge. This should all be a question of fact. But a jury should, should be deciding all of this. burden to prove that element of publicity. And I carried the prima facie burden by showing that this was a radio broadcast. But I think you say in your amended complaint, um, paragraph four, that a reporter from a local television news outlet alerted Brittany Rubendale to a data privacy breach. And, and that's how she knew about it. She, your client doesn't know about anyone else that has any of this information, so you would still have to prove. You know, I, I hear what you're saying. You're, you're saying that the actual transmission the software used for the pagers is, you're saying that's publicity? Correct. Okay. Yes. Um, and so we disagree as to what McKinsey tells us is publicity and what you think publicity is. Incorrect. I would argue that that actually does satisfy the McKinsey and restatement standards because that is broadcast of information that is sure to reach a number of people. If they want to say it's not sure to reach it, Neil, they can show us how many people have shortwave radios. They can. I'm so sorry about all this noise out no here. Like that. I, yeah. I, I enjoy the sense of having a crowd. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> um, I know it's distracting, so. No worries at all. It's distracting for me, so. But go ahead. I'm focused, Mr. Agassiz. Keep <laughs> it up. Thank you, sir. So. I'm focused as well, and I, I apologize to you. This should not be happening, but none, I mean, it should not be happening outside our doors. It's fine that it's happening, just not outside our doors. Sure, I understand. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. So to the point as to whose burden this is, especially on trial rule 56, I would like to speak to something that, so just a couple of months ago, we had a case called ZD versus Community Healthcare, uh, a case in which uh, Your Honor actually signed on. And this precise issue came up in that decision. The argument being that ZD, in that case, didn't know who all logged onto that Facebook page, didn't know who precisely, besides one or two people, actually got this information about her. But she posted it on Facebook. Correct. And, and, and explain to me uh, how you distinguish posting something on Facebook as opposed to somebody that has to have a ham radio, that has to have the appropriate uh, software, I don't see that those are similar types of situations. Just like I need to have a phone or a computer and a Wi-Fi connection and have the software downloaded in order to see something on Facebook or MySpace or anywhere else on the internet, it's a question of degree. There is little difference between me needing that computer and that software and me needing that shortwave radio and that software. Well, I, I disagree with you that it's a question of degree because I think uh, the courts have, have said that two or three people is just not enough. I'm obviously paraphrasing in that regard, but uh, you know, it's, it's more than one person. It, it's got to get to the public. Publicity is what publicity is. And uh, here, 
they present evidence that only one person has heard this through your client's affidavit, and I'm struggling trying to see how you think that was inappropriate shifting. I think it should have gone back to you for you then to prove all of those things that you have said previously that they should have done. It's not their case. And I guess we're, we're running circles around the same point, right. which is that this court is suggesting that you aren't really, it, it isn't reaching the public unless the public understands it or is, or is uh, hearing it in some way. And I would respectfully disagree. I don't think you can pull that from McKenzie. I don't think you can pull that from the it restatement. It isn't reaching the public if it isn't reaching the public. It is reaching the public if it is broadcast within a certain radius. Uh, the, the testimony from our HIPAA security expert being, it's going at least a mile and a half. If it is reaching a mile and a half radius from this hospital, it's being broadcast to those people. It's just a question of whether how many of them are receiving it. To go back to my analogy about the billboard, does it stop being publicity if I need a decoder ring to read it or if it's in a different language? Yes, we can, we can quibble with the facts. We can adjust the hypothetical like we're in law school all we want. But the reality is it was a broadcast. The restatement tells us that radio broadcasts are publicity. It's publicity per se. All the rest of this has to be decided by a jury. So I have a question for you. If you're sitting in a doctor's office, you're, let's say you're a news reporter sitting in a doctor's office, and you um, are there not for the reason that you're seeking medical attention, but you're there because you think someone you know is going to show up and you want to know if that person is um, there to, uh, it, let, let's say it's a, a a drug rehabilitation facility. You want to know if somebody's a patient at a drug rehabilitation facility and you are sitting there and you're watching this person come in and you're watching the um, receptionist call that person's name out with a room full of people. Is that publicity? It is not because okay, tell me why. that is something that is freely viewable. Uh, the I see that my time has elapsed. If I could you can conclude. The in that particular scenario, the, the fact that someone is receiving treatment is not itself private because that third party is in there, can see who is coming in and coming out, and is there deliberately to find out that information. So that specific example that you just cited would not be a problem because no information is being conveyed by the provider. Now, if the provider were saying something about prescriptions, or diagnoses or something like that, then we would be having a different conversation. And then we would have to talk about the number of people who are in that waiting room. But that's the difference between a private-facing communication and a public-facing communication like a billboard or a radio broadcast. Thank you, Mr. Eggerson. Thank you. Ms. Bukai? Thank you, Your Honor, and good morning. Hopefully, I can be heard. <laughs> May it please the court. This case is about Ms. Rubendahl's claims only. A single intercepted email to pager communication on July 1st, 2019 at 12.10 p.m., 12.10.35 p.m. to be exact. That's it. It's not a class action. We're not talking about 20 years of communication and that what may or may not have been intercepted. 
or what community may or may not have known. We're talking about Ms. Rubendahl's claim and that one single communication only. And while it's unfortunate that that television reporter chose to break the law and intercept that internal message regarding Ms. Rubendahl, Ms. Rubendahl breaking the law. It's our position that yes, she, she is. The federal law and state law prohibits people from intercepting those communications, especially communications regarding medical information. And thankfully, there's no evidence in the record that there was further dissemination of that. But there are federal and state laws that prohibit people from intercepting that, and there are private rights of action for that interception. You're talking so. about Indiana's wiretap law. Yeah, Indiana's wiretap law, and there's a federal wiretap and a federal communications act as well, and they're cited in our brief. So, um, as this court was was talking with Mr. Eggerson about, McKenzie controls. ZD doesn't control; it's McKenzie that controls. Um, on the negligence claim, no matter how hard Mr. Um, Eggerson and, and Ms. Rubendahl try to label them now, all of Ms. Rubendahl's claim damages, their emotional distress damages in nature, she can't recover on her negligence claims because she can't satisfy the modified impact rule or the bystander rule. And she can't succeed on the public disclosure claim as we were discussing because community did negate the uh, element number two, the publicity uh, element. We're according to the restatement definition, Chief Justice Rush's definition, which is the law in Indiana, not any other state's law, communication of the information to one person and communication that wasn't public or intended to become public just isn't actionable. So there was no improper burden shifting as alleged by the appellant? Absolutely not, Your Honor. We designated evidence not only from Ms. Uh, Rubendahl's affidavit that it only went to the one person, but we also designated the evidence that the TV reporter, Ms. Rinke, that she had to go through to actually access that information. So we negated it wasn't public and it wasn't ever meant to become public. So the two prongs of the definition that, that um, Judge Tavides read, it either reached, it is public or is sure to reach the public. So it didn't reach the public because it only went to one person and it wasn't sure to reach the public because it was an internal message that was in between the hospital personnel and then she had to jump through at least three hoops and break some laws in order to get that message. So, so publicity may not be what publicity is, but publicity is what the Supreme Court says publicity is, correct? I think so, Your because Honor. Because we have, I mean, we have a definition from our Supreme Court that we as an appellate court, uh, intermediate, are bound by, right? Absolutely. So uh, we, we don't get to decide what's publicity. Correct. And Mr. Eggison cites us to cases from other states to try to argue for this publicity per se standard, but that's not what our law is. Our law is what McKenzie says it is. It adopts the restatement and it gives us clear guidance. It is what publicity is. Chief Justice Rush and the Supreme Court, in a unanimous opinion, says this is what publicity is. It's very clear that we operate under a case-by-case -case basis. That's why we don't need we don't need a bright line. We, we shouldn't have a bright line. We should look at a case-by-case -case basis. And under these facts, we have a very clear factual pattern that under the facts that we put forth that we have an unfortunate incident where a TV reporter chose to intercept information. And fortunately, once she had it, it didn't go anywhere. Doesn't that matter wasn't why publicity. Does it doesn't matter in this case? In this case, I don't think it matters because fortunately it stayed with her, but 
but it's not for purposes of the two claims that have been alleged in this case, uh, the two claims that are before this court. There were three claims below, two that are before this court. Um, the elements were negated and the trial court uh, correctly entered summary judgment. Do we need to discuss whether these are intentional torts or unintentional torts to decide this case? You don't. Um, we have argued that there, as an alternative basis on the disclosure claim that if the court disagrees that we've negated the publicity element that it could also affirm on the basis of the intent. But I realize that puts me in a bit of an uncomfortable position um, given ZD. So we can talk about intent if we need to, but this court doesn't need to, to go to the intent prong if it, if it agrees with us on the publicity prong. So we can stay um, and not create any sort of conflicts um, if we uh, affirm on the basis of publicity. So you've indicated in your brief that you think ZD was wrongly decided. Um, on certain we, prongs. On certain prongs. So that's what I, my question is for you. How, uh, uh, how would we get around ZD based on the facts of this case? The court doesn't even need to, to go to ZD on the facts of this case because I think that on the publicity prong, it's clear under McKenzie that, that, that it's been negated. Um, but we in, have negligence. We have two. Correct. You said there are two claims though that are still, so the publicity only goes to the private mm -hmm. disclosure of private facts. If we look at publicity first, we have, in, in this case, there was one disclosure, and as we've talked, it stopped with the TV reporter. That was one disclosure, it stopped, there's been no further dissemination. The issue in ZD was, the issue for that disclosure was, in that case, there was an inadvertent mailing to one person. That person then posted on Facebook. We don't know if that was an inadvertent mailing. There's nothing in the record to indicate that, so. Correct, uh, Judge Altice. If we... Assume that it, if, don't even think about whether it was inadvertent or not, but that second disclosure went to Facebook. The court in ZD said that it was an issue for the jury whether the disclosure to the first person or the dis second disclosure was the publicity issue. And so that is whether the Facebook disclosure or the first one was disclosure. And so that it was improper for summary judgment in ZD. Here we don't have a second disclosure. We have one single disclosure to one person, and then that was that publicity. It, it, that's the issue. And then also was the you know the publishing on Facebook, as Judge Altice was talking about. That is completely different from a communication that was internal to the hospital that also happened to go out on these shortwave radio radios that could also be decoded using a shortwave radio. Then when you you had to purchase the shortwave radio, and then you had to go out and download two separate software. You know, two separate softwares. Only after you took those three steps could you see what was was happening. Is there that, a difference between a shortwave radio and a ham radio? Or are we talking about the same things? I believe we're talking about the same things. Okay. But again, I am a lawyer and not someone. Um, no. I've looked at it on on Google and watched how it works, but the terminology is is a it's a ham radio is what I, I think that the terminology would be. So. That is, is very different from um, a direct, something that's directly accessible to the public, like going on the internet and seeing a public posting, like the one at issue in the Yath case that Mr. Eggison talks about, or a, potentially a Facebook post. That's that Minnesota is different. Minnesota case, correct? Yeah, uh, the Minnesota case. Yeah. That is why it is different than ZD, and that's why we don't have to have a conflict in ZD on the disclosure point. 
the ZD case um, on the, the negligence issue, the only issue that is at issue here, we're in complete agreement with the ZD court on because the, uh, there are no pecuniary damages at issue here, and that was the issue that was reversed and sent back to the trial court in ZD. Here, uh, Ms. Rubendahl is very clear that she is only seeking, she's seeking damages for her loss of privacy, which she defines as her embarrassment, stress, and anxiety. Whereas in ZD, the plaintiff in that matter lost her job, lost her husband, had to move out of her apartment. Uh, it, it, correct. And correct. so. So the emotional distress. Correct. Is all she's asking for, correct? Is all she's asking for here. And Ms. we're not allowed to do that um, under these facts because it, it doesn't fall under the modified Modif impact rule or the bystander rule. Correct. Now, Mr. Eggison is arguing that there is a separate loss of privacy damages that is not emotional distress. He's arguing that that's a separate category of damages, and he's trying to borrow. Indiana has not recognized. Correct. And so he's, borrow he's trying to borrow from the invasion of privacy tort and bring that over to the negligence case, but the ZD court correctly uh, correctly found that those were synonymous damages. I think he tried that also in the Henry II case, and the court didn't even reach that issue. Did, did he plead anything similar to that in his amended complaint? That's the only damages he's alleging is loss of privacy. And then when we asked about, you know, what are your damages? What, what does that entail? He said loss of privacy. His, his client, Ms. Rubendahl, under oath said, loss of privacy damages mean my embarrassment, my anxiety, and my, um, and my stress. But even when you look at what this loss of privacy element is supposed to be under the, under the restatement when you look in the invasion of privacy, that is a reputational damage. And that's what she's not even alleged a, a damage to her reputation. She has only alleged damages to her emotional distress. So under a, negligence under a negligence case, she wouldn't be able to recover that anyway. So if you're going to ask a jury to, to quantify that. She's trying to quantify that using her emotional distress damages. So all of this is a moot point anyway, because it's loss of privacy as evidenced by my emotional distress, which is a circular argument. It's no matter what type of label he tries to put on it, it is still negligence. So it's just trying to get around the Supreme Court's pronouncement in McKenzie. And so for that reason, we don't even need to get to ZD. We don't, need to, um, we don't need to go down the rabbit hole of why the modified impact rule should have some sort of, um, some sort of uh, exception here because it's just a circular, a circular argument for damages that aren't allowable under negligence. So, let me ask you this. In your brief, you talk uh, uh, about hypothetical situation. If we grant uh, or if we uh, reverse this matter and send it back to the trial court, uh, I don't like floodgate type of arguments, but could you address, you talked about, let's say somebody hacks a computer system of Anthem and their software is outdated and makes the hack easy and you, know, you have 20,000 people now whose private information is out there. Um, if we grant Mr. Eggison's uh, 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 appeal here, or we reverse, does that open the floodgates to those types of things? Uh, in other words, everybody that then has a private right of, uh, or a public disclosure of private rights case or a negligence case under that if they've been hacked by Anthem, under his theory? Absolutely. Are we talking for the disclosure or are we talking for negligence? Because I think under either situation, absolutely. And that's been the worry of the Supreme Court, especially under the modified impact rule, 
and it also could do so under the negligence case. I mean, that's what Justice Slaughter, his dissent under NKG was was perfect example of that. If we keep eking away with these exceptions and exceptions and exceptions, at what point do we completely slide down the, down the hill? And so this is an issue. The legislature has has adequately, more than adequately, protected the privacy. You know, it, it said that these rights are protected. It said that we should talk about these, especially these large disclosures, should be protected and should be enforced by the governmental entities like HHS should be enforced by the AG because they're the ones that can look at the scope and look at the magnitude and can, can police these. They don't give private rights of action for those. They instead enforce them the other way. They enforce them through the governmental entities. This court has, uh, this court and the Supreme Court have allowed for certain negligent cases, negligent cases, but the court has struck the balance that if you're going to have a negligence case, you have to satisfy the modified impact rule. They've allowed the disclosure. Pegasin says, though, that if, if we keep it that way, then no one's ever going to be able to recover uh, under this situation. Uh, do you agree with that? I don't, Your Honor. I, I don't at all. I think that. So tell me then how you uh, uh, believe somebody in a situation such as this could pr prove their damages uh, other than just emotional distress. How do you get around the modified impact rule? According to him, you're never going to get around it. Um. Yeah, in the in the Macintosh case, our Supreme Court a number of years ago said, unfortunately, there's there's um, not a fundamental right to recover for every wrong, and and, and that's true. We, we don't always get to recover for every wrong that happens to us. But the Supreme Court has struck the balance that if we're going to allow negligence claims, you have to suffer for that modified, you have to satisfy the modified impact rule. And they have just like less than a year ago, in April, they had a case just like this, a medical privacy where you had a snooping employee that looked up the medical records and potentially disclosed them to people. And back in April, so again, eight months, nine months ago, they looked at this case and they said, we still want to have this modified impact rule. The balance of having hospitals provide this care and use these electronic medical records is adequately provided, is adequate to having the potential for not having um, everybody be able to bring these claims. And so if you're going to have these negligence claims, you need to be able to satisfy the modified impact rule. So I but have a question for you. Sorry. So. Um, we've not discussed, and it's not in the complaint, whether what information was alleged to be published through the airwaves, was it highly offensive to a reasonable person as required on the re under the restatement of torts? What, we, we, that has not been brought up. Was it information that was highly offensive? That would be more of a question of fact. It wasn't something that we were prepared to yeah, move for summary judgment on. Okay. So maybe if this matter would ever go back to, to trial, it would be potentially a okay. matter so there's there. there's nothing in the record, so that's not an issue for us. It's not an issue for you. Okay. Mr. Eggison and I know what it is, but I, I don't know that it would ever. Yeah, we don't need yeah. to say it, right? But we don't need to say it. The bottom line is, is you think it's a question of fact for the jury, if, so that's not something that's worth all, arguing over. Correct. If yes. it's a question at all, it, it's, not, it's not here before the court today. Well, so can I get was, her to answer it, my question okay, that sure. I asked yeah. originally, and that is, can you think of a factual situation uh, uh, such as uh, this where you have 
damages in addition to uh, emotional distress? In other words, how do you satisfy, can you think of a situation, how you satisfy that modified impact rule? I could, w trying to think of a hypothetical where somebody could satisfy the modified impact rule would, I was actually thinking if, if someone came across someone that was getting ready to post information on Facebook or something, and maybe there was a struggle over a cell phone, and there was an impact, or there was, they were struggling to say, don't do that, or if there was some sort of impact, there could be an impact, or if there was, I'm sure there would, there is a possibility where there could be some sort of impact. You just can't think of one now. I just thought of one for you. Okay. If there, if somebody comes across somebody that says, I've got your medical records and I'm going to post it on Facebook. No, you're not. Yes, I am. There's a struggle or, you know, there's... Gets a black eye, the lady goes ahead and, and, and posts it on Court, Facebook. Yeah, and then, the Supreme Court has said it doesn't have to result in an injury. You know, you don't have to have an injury, but it can be some sort of impact. There can be some sort of impact enough to, to, you know, to, to satisfy it. But again, that is the balance that is struck. But I think more importantly... If we, the Supreme Court wanted to serve, you know, to, to recognize these emotional distress damages for the disclosure, maybe negligence isn't the right way to do it. Maybe this new tort of disclosure is the way to do it. And if you want to recover your emotional distress damages, that's how you do it. And if you have emotional distress damages, you have to, you have to be able to, to satisfy the elements of disclosure. And that's, that's what it is. If, if you want to recover under these torts, you have to satisfy the elements. And if you can't satisfy the elements, then, then, that's, then you unfortunately can't recover. And so that, it's, not the, it's not that we have a situation where we're cutting off the ability of people to recover. Our Supreme Court has given, us numer or has given plaintiffs numerous ways to recover. We also still have the federal and the state governments that will protect plaintiffs. But if you can't satisfy the elements, just like in any other tort, you cannot recover. And unless the court has any other questions for me, the trial court here correctly granted Community Hospital Anderson and Madison County's summary judgment motion. No matter what label Ms. Rubendahl tries to put on them, she asserted only emotional damages as a result of community's alleged negligence and the disclosure at issue was allegedly communicated only to one person and wasn't ever designed to become public. Neither of her claims are actionable under Indiana law, and we respectfully request that the court affirm the judgment of the trial court. Thank you, Ms. Bougain. Thank you very much. All right. Mr. Denny, you may conclude the argument. Thank you. Just three very quick points. Uh, the first being when asked if there were any scenario in which uh, any, someone could recover for a, figured you had one. a privacy. Well, that's the response was our Supreme Court has said not every harm has a remedy. Make no mistake. The modified, Im I don't want to spend too much time on the modified impact rule. To be candid, I'm not sure that an intermediate appellate court can do much with it. Well, but I the, think you concede that in your, in I do. your, in your brief. So, but uh, the reality being the modified impact rule kills privacy claims and there are no exceptions. And I think counsel just conceded to that. The second issue, which is perhaps more, more salient in this moment, is the, at the very beginning, counsel said, thankfully, there is no evidence that this Fox 59 reporter disseminated the information she learned any further. 
And that gets directly to the point I was trying to make about this not being a Celotex jurisdiction. There's no other evidence about it because they didn't ask. But nope. you're saying that the publicity was the, the airing of the, the call. You're, you're not saying that what the reporter did or didn't do. That's correct. The point here being there are two different ways that one would prove publicity. You either prove publicity per se by showing posting it in a shop window, putting it on a billboard, a radio transmission, or in cases like McKenzie, since you had a privately directed communication, you have to prove it by showing the people that it actually reached. So if they're saying that publicity per se is not a real thing, and that I'm I am some... Of, you think it is in the state of Indiana? I do. I think the restatement That's is clear. Law? Okay. No, the argument being the illustrations the in section 652D, which we adopted, say this is publicity. It doesn't say that I have to go get 100 affidavits from the people who subscribe to that newspaper. It's publicity regardless of the size of the circulation of that newspaper. Yet, it does yet publicity as defined in McKenzie, though, wouldn't fall. Your scenario doesn't fall within that definition. And I would disagree because a couple of times now, members of this panel have suggested that the definition that is given in McKenzie somehow decides this case. And the more I think about it, the more I think the difference may be in how we are defining the word communicate. Because the reality is when I post something in a shop window, I'm communicating it regardless of any, whether anyone ever reads it. If I'm putting something out in a shortwave radio blast, I'm communicating it regardless of whether anyone receives it. If we want to talk about how many people receive it, fine, make that argument to a jury, we can have a conversation about damages. But to say that a jury can't even talk about it, that a jury never hears about it because a court is going to protect community in that scenario, that's not what McKenzie holds. That's not what publicity is under that standard. It is a difference, and I keep coming back to the example of the billboard on 69. It is a difference between are you going to place the burden, the summary judgment burden, on the victim, or are you going to place the summary judgment burden on the tortfeasor? That's what you are deciding here today. Did you just uh, depose uh, the reporter in this case? I did not, because I did not move for summary judgment, so I didn't need to negate any element of the claim. If they wanted to say that there was no publicity, if they want to use as that there's no evidence that she disseminated it to anyone else, it's their burden in a non-celotex jurisdiction to come forward and prove that to you. I guess I just want to take issue with something. Our, our interest here is not in protecting community or protecting your client. Our interest is in simply applying the law. So, you know, we don't... Fair point. Okay. My apologies if I, okay. if I, I, said, that in, if I said that poorly. Sure. Okay. No, I see my no time has elapsed. Yeah, I appreciate no your attention. Thank you, and thanks to the parties for fine arguments today. Take nothing from our questions, and we will have a decision uh, to you in due course. Thank you all.